if you would, go ahead then and take out your Bibles. Let's turn together to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and let's look together at chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, as we continue moving our way verse by verse through this uh, awesome letter. We are coming this morning to a, a new passage, a new section of the letter, uh, verses 12 through 21, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. This is a fascinating nine verses. These are uh, very, very helpful verses to understanding the big picture of Christianity. Uh, they are very intriguing, uh, just interesting verses. Uh, we will be in these nine verses um, beginning today through February. So we'll be here for uh, five weeks studying these nine verses. And uh, I trust you will find this study to be very encouraging and helpful because these verses are encouraging and helpful. And so what I want to do is begin reading in verse 12. And I want to go ahead and just read through verse 21 so you get the full picture of what Paul was saying in these Nine verses. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, if we grasp what Paul is teaching in these verses, we will begin to understand how it is that Jesus' life of righteousness can be imputed to us. Remember, at the heart of the gospel... At the heart of salvation is this idea of imputation. So everybody say, imputation. You need to make sure you know this word. The idea of imputation is that something accomplished by one person 
can be justly credited to another person's account. At the cross, my sins were imputed to Jesus. At the cross, my sins were placed on Christ, on His account. God treated Jesus as though He had done all the sins that I had ever committed and all the sins that all of His people had ever committed. When we believe on Jesus, the perfect righteousness that Jesus accomplished over 33 years, even going to death in obedience to His Father, is credited to our account. God treats Christians as though they were the ones who have been perfect in obedience and perfect in faithfulness. This idea of imputation is the basis of why God can be holy and yet save sinners. It's imputation that allows God to be just in the salvation of people. Church, if we lose imputation the gospel falls apart. If imputation is a lie, Christianity is a lie. That is how important this concept is. And Paul's purpose in these nine verses is to help us understand why it is that Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of death, can be credited to sinners like us. Have you ever wondered about that? Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus can be punished for my sins or that I can be rewarded for Jesus' obedience? Is that fair? Is that just? Reminds me of a story uh, I read when I was a little kid about a whipping boy. And whenever the young prince misbehaved, the whipping boy would be called in to receive the whipping on behalf of the prince. And the more the prince misbehaved, the more the whipping boy was whipped. Now, does that sound right? Wouldn't we normally say that you should punish the one who committed the crime and you should reward the one who was truly obedient? And yet our salvation depends on God doing the exact opposite of that, punishing the one who was perfect and blessing the ones who sinned. And so this is why Paul takes this time to explain to us the basis of imputation. And he does this by pointing us to the Old Testament. In particular, he wants to point us to an Old Testament type. Um, We've talked about this when we preached through Genesis uh, 22 and Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac or the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And we talked about how Isaac was a type of Christ. If we want to read our Bibles and understand much of the meaning of Scripture, we need to have this concept down, the concept of types and anti-types. Okay, So everybody say the word type. Everybody say the word anti-type. These are not words that theologians created. These are biblical words. These are words that Paul uses in the Bible. So you need to make sure you understand what they mean. The word type comes from the Greek word tupos. refers to something that has been stamped with the impression of something else. Okay? So for example, a king's seal stamped onto a declaration. 
The mark that is left on that document is an exact impression. It's an emblem of what's on the stamp. It's like when you take a cookie cutter, right? And you press it into the cookie dough. The cookie dough now bears the same image as the cookie cutter. Well, in the Bible, a type is something that bears the image of something else. It's a copy of it. The antitype is that of which the type is a copy. The antitype is the original. It's the real thing. And then the type is the copy, the image, the shadow. This is used all over the Bible. Particularly in the Old Testament, we run into people, we run into things, we run into events that are types of things to come. Shadows, images of things that are to come. And so when we were in Genesis 22, we talked about the many ways that Isaac was a type of Christ. He was an image of Christ as he was almost sacrificed by his father Abraham on Mount Moriah. He was an imperfect picture, but a picture nonetheless of Jesus and his own willingness to be sacrificed by his father. So you have Isaac carrying his own wood on which he was going to be sacrificed up the mountain to the place where he would be sacrificed. Prefiguring Jesus carrying his cross to the Mount Golgotha where he would be crucified. Isaac, born miraculously. Jesus, born miraculously. Isaac, prophecies tied to his birth. Right? Jesus, prophecies tied to his birth. Isaac, a faithful and obedient son. Isaac, the beloved son of his father. Isaac, keeping silent as he comes to the place of sacrifice. Isaac, willingly allowing himself to be bound. Over and over again, we see Isaac as a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. 1 Peter 3. Peter tells us that the flood of Noah was a type. He says it was a type of baptism. That is, the flood of Noah was a picture of how eight people on the ark passed safely through water into salvation. And he said that that was prefiguring baptism and the ordinance through which we show us going through water into salvation. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul points us to the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. And he talks about how there were many Israelites who left Egypt, headed to the promised land, but they died in the wilderness because of unbelief. And Paul tells us that this was pointing to our day. He even uses the word type, tupas, and says that these Israelites who died in the wilderness because of unbelief are just like those who uh, start the Christian journey and seem to be headed towards heaven, but they die along the way due to unbelief. In the books of Acts and Hebrews, we learn that all of those many laws that were given in Exodus about how the tabernacle was to be built, about how the temple was to be built, those laws didn't come out of nowhere. They were given as a type of the true temple, the true holy place where God dwells. In fact, there is not a single aspect of the tabernacle. There is not a single aspect of the temple that is not a shadow pointing to some reality concerning heaven itself. By the way, that's why all of those laws in Exodus, all of those laws in the Old Testament about the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple, they shouldn't be boring to us. 
They are telling us things about heaven itself. They are telling us things about the place where God dwells. Indeed, the church, the people in whom God dwells, those things were a type of the real thing, the true house of God. So that's the idea of types and antitypes. Here in Romans 5, Paul wants us to understand how God can bless us for Christ's obedience and punish Christ for our disobedience. And he does this by pointing to one particular Old Testament type. Perhaps the most important type in the Bible. He was a real person. He was a man. He was the first man. And his name is Adam. And it is from Adam that we can begin to get an understanding about this idea of imputation. Now what Paul does in these verses is he reminds us of how Adam is like Christ, how Adam pointed to Christ. And that's not all. Paul goes on to show how, though Adam pointed to Christ, Christ far surpasses Adam. Remember, types are always pictures of the antitype, but the antitype is always better. Okay, So the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple, these were pictures of heaven, but they were not heaven, right? They were, they were pictures of heaven. They were foreshadowing of heaven. But heaven itself far surpasses the tabernacle. Heaven itself far surpasses the temple. And so though Adam was a type of Christ, a prefiguring of Christ, a picture or image of Christ, nevertheless, Christ far surpasses Adam. And so Paul is going to help us understand these things, how they are the same, how they are similar, and yet how Christ far surpasses Adam. And in this way, he's going to help us wrap our minds around this idea of imputation. Now, it would be easy to get confused in this passage. And I don't want you to get confused in this passage. So let me help you get a a big view of, of the flow of Paul's thought here. What happens in these verses is that in verse 12, Paul starts to make his point. Okay, Verse 12, Paul starts to make his point. And then he gets sidetracked. He, he interrupts himself. In verses 13 through 17, he, he's not really chasing a rabbit. What he's doing, it seems as if he wrote verse 12 and then realized that if we're going to understand what he's saying, he needs to back up for a minute. There are questions that need to be answered. There are objections that need to be addressed. And so he stops right in the middle of what he's saying in verse 12. And in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, he takes us into a parenthesis in which he's trying to help us catch up with where he is, right? He wants us to be tracking with him so that when he comes to the main point, we get it. When he gets to verse 18, he starts all over again with what he was going to say in verse 12. Having brought us up to speed, he now makes his main point in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. So when you read this passage, verses 18 through 21 are what Paul really wants to say, and the verses leading up to verses 18 through 21 are to help us get to where Paul is. It's to help us track with him in what he is saying to help us understand some things. Now, um, since this is something of an introductory message to the passage, and we're going to be here for several weeks, I want you to understand how pivotal 
these nine verses have been in history. Um, These nine verses have been at the center of controversy ever since the early days of the church. In fact, God has particularly used these nine verses to protect the gospel from being lost, from being twisted and distorted, from being destroyed. I would dare say that if it were not for these nine verses and the men who wrote about these nine verses and the men who preached sermons about these nine verses and the men who who defended these nine verses, the gospel would have never made it to the 21st century. You and I would have never received a pure gospel. You and I would never have been saved had God not used these nine verses in church history to protect the gospel. Now, there are several examples I could give of that, but I'm going to point you to the biggest one, the one that I, hope you, I want you all to know about this because it was such an important moment in the history of God's people. So we're going back to the 400s A.D. The 400s A.D. And we have a controversy brewing among God's people. On one side of the controversy was a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was born in Ireland. Okay? He was a, a monk, a British monk, born in the year 354. He lived in Rome for a time until the city of Rome fell in 410. And after that, he moved to Jerusalem. And Pelagius lived in Jerusalem in these early years of the 400s. Now, Pelagius was a teacher. Pelagius was a writer. And Pelagius had a great deal of influence on Christian leaders in his day. Okay? So we have Pelagius over here. Okay? Over here, we have a man named Augustine. Okay? He's the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Uh, Augustine, too, is an influential teacher, an influential writer. He's a, he's a pastor as well. And the controversy began when Augustine wrote a very short and simple prayer that became very well known among the Christians of his day. And Augustine's prayer was this. See what you think about it. Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. In other words, Lord, you can command us to do whatever you desire us to do. But Lord, also give us the will and the ability to do it. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Lord, grant whatever it is you're going to command. Give me the strength. Give me the will. Give me the ability to do whatever you command. And then, Lord, you can command of me what you want. Give me any instruction. Give me any command you want to give me, but give me the grace to be able to do it. Well, that was the prayer of Augustine. Pelagius did not like that prayer at all. In his mind, that prayer seemed to assume that God might command us to do something we could not do. This prayer seemed to suggest that God might give us commands that we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to fulfill. And to Pelagius, this was ridiculous. It was immoral. Surely God would never command a person to do something that that person cannot do. What do you think of that? 
Does God have the right to command of us something we cannot do? Well, Because Pelagius thought that this would make God unjust, he determined that Christians in his day had misunderstood the teaching of Scripture. He determined that, that Christians had made an error in understanding something about the Christian faith. He determined that man cannot be dead in sin, that man cannot be unable to do good on his own. For then, if, if people are dead in sin, how can God call them to love Him if that's what they can't do? How can God call people to obey Him if they're dead in sin and cannot do it? That would make God unjust to say to people, do something you cannot do. So He said, we must not understand this idea that people are dead in sin or cannot obey God. Let me quickly tell you some of what Pelagius therefore taught. Number one, when God created Adam, Adam was good. Number two, Adam did not need grace to do what God commanded of him. Adam could do whatever God commanded of him in his own power, in his own strength. Number three, Adam willingly chose to sin, and it was Adam's sin that brought painful consequences to Adam's life. Number four, death was not a result of Adam's sin. Death was a part of God's plan from the beginning. Number five, despite Adam's choice to sin, his human nature remained inherently good. Number six, every human being is born in exactly the same condition that Adam was created in, namely, inherently good. Number seven, every human being is able to do what God commands without the need for God's help. Eight, it is possible for a man to live and to never sin. Nine, Christ died to set a good example for us of what it means to obey God. He did not die to save people from a bondage to sin. Now, if you're listening closely and you know what the Bible says about these things, you know that Pelagius' teaching was dead wrong. Okay? These things were not true. But these were the days before the printing press. right? It wasn't like every Christian in these days had their own copy of the Bible that they could turn to and say, oh, wait a minute, but what about, what about Ephesians 2.1? Right? Well, what about this? Most Christians had no Bible, and therefore they were dependent on Christian teachers and Christian leaders to tell them what the Bible said. And so Belagius' teaching began to gain ground. In fact, it seemed a much better fit with their culture than what some of these other guys like Augustine were teaching. And so before long, there were a lot of people, including some very highly influential Christian people, who agreed with Pelagius. Mankind, including you and I and everyone who lives, is born inherently good, and God gives us commands that we have in our power the ability to obey, and that it is even possible that a person can live their whole life and never sin. Now things got dicey when one of Pelagius' followers, a man named Coelestius, he sought to be made a pastor in the church of Carthage. And the other leaders of that church did not agree with Pelagius. They learned that this follower of Pelagius, this man Coelestius, that he denied that Adam's sin affected anyone but Adam. Right? This was the teaching of Pelagius, that when Adam sinned, it affected only Adam. When you sin, it affects only you. 
They learned that this man believed that all people are inherently good and that even sins cannot change the inherent goodness of our nature. And so the more these other pastors looked into the beliefs of this coalescius, and the more they compared what he was teaching to the Scriptures, the more concerned they became. And instead of bringing Coelestius on as a pastor, they actually excommunicated him from the church for believing such false doctrines. Now, when that happened, Coelestius left Carthage and went to Ephesus. This is the Ephesus that we have a book in our Bible about, right? The book of Ephesians, in which Paul wrote letters to them. This was a church that that had lots of spiritual blessing in earlier days. But by this point in church history, the church in Ephesus was not even really a church. They had long ago lost the gospel. This was where Paul had taught, where Timothy had taught, where the Apostle John had spent many of years of their lives. But at this point in history, this church was now neck deep in false doctrine. And when Coelestius came to them, they said, you can be our pastor. And sure enough, they brought him on as a pastor in their church. Friends, do we not live in a culture that teaches very similar things to what Pelagius was teaching? If we were to go take a poll of people around us in Rocky Mount, do you think most of them would say that human beings are inherently good or inherently wicked? I think most would say that we're all deep down inherently good at heart. Are there not many who, just like Pelagius, love to talk about Jesus as a good example? Love to talk about Jesus as a good teacher. It's only when you talk about Jesus as a substitute for sinners on the cross that people begin to step back. That's what Pelagius did. Are there not many in our own culture who believe that we can be as good as we need to be if we just dig in deep into ourselves and do it? Right? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get out there and do it. You have what you need to do. You can be as good as you need to be. Do it in and of your own power. That's Pelagianism. And it threatened the gospel in the 400s. Now, by God's grace, men were raised up who showed that Pelagianism is a direct contradiction of God's Word. Synods were held... A synod is a meeting. It could last days, it could last weeks, it could last months, it could even last years, in which Christian leaders come together to examine a person or to examine an issue in light of the Scriptures and to make a pronouncement. And so the first synod that was called about Pelagius, they asked Pelagius to come and defend his views, and by the end of the synod, he recanted and renounced his own views. He said, I should not have been teaching those things. And he recanted his own views. But he was just being a coward. Because almost as soon as the synod was over, he wrote several books over the next several years defending again his false doctrines. Two more synods were held, both of them condemning Pelagius for his views. Let me give you one pronouncement from one of them. They said, We declare in virtue of our apostolic authority, that Pelagius and Coelestius are excluded from the communion of the church until they deliver themselves from these snares of the devil. Now, while they were being condemned by some of these synods of godly men who were pronouncing not condemnation on these men, but on their teaching and saying that they were condemned as long as they held to this teaching, meanwhile, lots of Christians were still listening to Pelagius. 
Lots of average Christian men and women were being affected by the teaching of Pelagius. And so finally, in the year 418, a council was called in which over 200 Christian leaders came together to deal with the controversy. They spent time listening to Pelagius and his views. They spent time looking into the scriptures and they again denounced Pelagianism. They did it again in 431 A.D. This shows you how persistent Pelagianism was in the church. It didn't just go away. It kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And in 431, the council declared Pelagianism an official heresy. And it has been denounced by true Christianity ever since. Now, why did I give you that history lesson? Why did I tell you all that? Augustine was the man who probably did more than any other to show how unbiblical Pelagius' views were. It was Augustine's writings that were used by God to save the church from falling into utterly false doctrine. We could go so far as to say that if it had not been for Augustine and those like him who defended the faith, the gospel would not have survived into the 500 A.D.s, much less the 21st century. Your salvation, my salvation, was at stake in that controversy, and it was God who protected the gospel by raising up men to defend the truth, Augustine being the chief one. And guess what passage Augustine used preeminently to defend the gospel? and to show the error of Pelagius' ways. It was these nine verses. Again and again, these verses were the core of the debate, and it was Augustine who showed from them the lie that Pelagianism is. And so as we come to these nine verses, you need to be aware that God has already used them for your good. God has already used these nine verses for the good of your soul. He did it long before you were even born, dear Christian. Now, we're just going to stick our toes in this morning. We'll dive in next week. But let's just look at verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Now, one common view of this verse goes like this. The death referred to in this passage is not spiritual death. It's physical death. Some people think that what Paul is doing here is trying to explain why people physically die. And so he takes us back to Adam... Right, And of course, he's kind of reminding us that the wages of sin is death. And so Adam sinned and Adam died. And he says that this reality explains what happens in humanity every day. People choose to sin at some point in their lives. And because they sin, they die. If, if there was a person who didn't sin, that person wouldn't die. But just as we see with Adam, everybody sins and every person who sins, they die. That's how some people understand this passage. And at first hearing, that may sound like a fine understanding of it, but the truth is it has some very serious problems. And I'm going to mention two. Number one, 
that interpretation fails to deal adequately with the word spread. Do you see the word spread in verse 12? What does Paul claim to be explaining in this verse? He claims to be explaining, yes, how death came into the world, but more than that, Paul is explaining how death spread from Adam to the rest of the human race. And so death spread to all men. You see that word so and so death spread to all men? Meaning in this way, in this way, death spread to all men? In what way? What is the connection between Adam's sin and Adam's death and your sin and my sin and your death and my death? In the view I just shared, there is no connection. In the view of many, Adam was a sinner, we are sinners. Adam died for his sins, we die for our sins, but there's no connection between us and Adam. It just so happens that we choose to sin the way Adam did. Sadly, the idea of some seems to be that the only reason Adam is even mentioned in verse 12 is because Paul is simply reminding us who the first sinner was. He takes us back to the first sinner and says, See, this is what happened to the first sinner. He died. And so that just kind of sets the model for how it works. Well, if Paul was pointing us to the first sinner, he messed up, didn't he? Because Adam was not the first to take the fruit of the tree. If Adam was going to point us to the first sin in humanity, the first sinner, he messed up. Eve was the first human being to sin. Did Paul not know that? Of course he knew it. You see, Paul's aim here is not to inform us of who the first person was to sin. His aim is to show how it is that death came to affect the entire human race. And in that context, he does not draw our attention to Eve. He draws our attention to Adam. In Paul's mind, there is a connection between the sin and death of Adam and the sin and death of you and me. What is the connection? We'll go there in a minute. Number two, the other problem with that interpretation is that it misses the connection. I'm sorry, the the interpretation that misses the connection between Adam and us fails to deal adequately with the last two words of the verse. Look at the last two words of the verse. You see, in particular, that interpretation that says that we're disconnected from Adam, Adam sinned and died for his own sin, we sinned and died for our own sins, it misses the past tense of the last two words. Paul does not say, death spread to all men because all sin. He says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Speaking of the entire human race, Paul uses the past tense and says that death has come on all of us because we all sinned. Why does he use the past tense? What is the connection to Adam? All right, I'm going to make two suggestions. We're going to do one to close out this morning. We'll pick up the second one next week. Here are the two suggestions that I think clear up what Paul is teaching in verse 12. Number one, the death that Paul is speaking of in verse 12 is not mainly physical death but spiritual death. The death that Paul is speaking of in verse 12 is not mainly physical death, but spiritual death. And number two, and this is the clincher, when Paul says that all sinned, 
What he means is that we all sinned and died when Adam sinned and died. Paul is not talking here about the sins that you and I commit during our lifetimes. Paul is talking here about how the entire human race sinned corporately in Adam. When Adam sinned and died in the garden, the entire human race sinned and died in the garden. We are the race of the living dead. We are physically alive, but people are spiritually dead. We died when Adam sinned and died. And it is only through Jesus that people get to be made alive again. Now, let me just tackle that first suggestion, okay? Suggestion one is that the death that Paul is speaking of in this hugely important verse is mainly spiritual death, not physical death. Paul is not primarily trying to tell us how physical death has come to affect the human race, but he's trying to tell us how spiritual death has come to affect the human race. Now, physical death is attached to that, but spiritual death is the main issue. And how do we know that spiritual death is mainly what Paul's talking about? Well, what has Paul been talking about through the entire book of Romans up to this point? The issue that Paul has been dealing with in Romans so far is that human beings, all human beings, are sinners under the wrath of God. Paul has been trying to help us understand the gospel. Way back in Romans 1.16, he got this thing started with, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And from that moment on, he has been unpacking the gospel from there to here. And his focus in these chapters has not been on how God saves people from physical death. His focus in these chapters has been on how God saves people from spiritual death. Now that spiritual death has two aspects to it. The first is the deadness of our own souls to God. We are dead in sin. Natural man is so bound to sin, so captivated by sin, that by nature we do not care for God and we do not listen to His will. And so Ephesians 2.1, speaking of who we were before we were saved, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here is the natural condition of the human heart today. Spiritually speaking, it's dead. Now, Pelagius and many in our day believe that man is inherently good, that man is able to do whatever God commands us to do. But the Scriptures say the opposite. We saw it in Romans 3, didn't we? Romans 3, 10 through 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Does that sound like an optimistic perspective of the human race? No. It's describing spiritual death. How did human beings come to be this way? Adam was created good. I mean, God looks at His creation at the end of Genesis 1 and He declares it very good. So how is it that today, little baby boys and little baby girls are now born with wickedness already in their hearts? 
Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? How did we get this way? And Paul's answer is that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And when Adam died spiritually, it was the spiritual death of the entire human race. The other aspect of this spiritual death is that mankind is now by nature under the wrath of God. Pelagius denied this. He assumed that from birth people are in God's good favor. But the Bible is clear that because people are inherently wicked, they are also from birth under God's righteous wrath. In Ephesians 2, when Paul is is reminding Christians of who they once were, He not only says that they were dead in sins and trespasses, but he says this, listen. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, listen, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The wrath... And that verse is God's wrath, and all people by nature are objects of God's wrath. Why? Because we are by nature wicked. It is not that God is evil and we are good. It is that we are wicked and God is good. That is why we are by nature under His wrath. And this is why Paul began unpacking the gospel in Romans 1, and when he did, he started with the wrath of God. The great danger that hangs over all humanity. The great thing from which we need to be saved is the wrath of God. The death that Paul is talking about in Romans 5 is both the spiritual deadness of our souls and the death that is the wrath of God. Often called in the Bible, the second death. A picture of hell itself. How is it that God's good creatures... Good creatures. We were created good in the beginning. How is it that God's good creatures came to be under the wrath of God? How is it that we are by nature condemned and headed for hell? Well, as I will try and show next week, when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned, and when Adam himself came under the curse of the wrath of God, all humanity with him came under the curse of of the wrath of God. And just as Adam represented humanity when he sinned and died, so Jesus represented a new humanity when he obeyed his Father to the point of death. Adam represented humankind in the garden. When he sinned, we sinned. And a curse came upon all. But Jesus represented his people in his perfect life and death. And for those who believe on Jesus, the curse is reversed. And we have blessings instead. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Jesus is the second Adam. But whereas Adam failed and brought death to us all, Jesus succeeded and brings life to everyone that he represents. May Christ bring life to any in this room who are still dead. And may Christ bring life to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who are still dead. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. 
And so the question for you, in light of verse 12, is this. Dear friend, are you spiritually dead? What is the condition of your soul? Are you enslaved to sins? Are you still an enemy of God, living your own life, your own way? If you were to die today, would God welcome you as His child into heaven or cast you into hell as His enemy? If God is causing you to sense your own deadness right now, that's a positive sign. That's how salvation begins, is when we first begin to to, to recognize, I am in trouble. I am not who I ought to be, and I can't make myself who I ought to be. And so declare your need for Jesus. Throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Jesus is compassionate and kind and full of love, and just as Adam brought death to you in the garden, so Christ, representing His people in His life, death, and resurrection, can now bring life to everyone who believes on His name. He will save all who turn to Him in faith. And so, let's examine our hearts. Are we believing? Are we resting in Christ? Do we trust Him? Pray that we do. Let's pray. So let's take a few moments and just think about what we've heard this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. And ask God, is there something that needs to change in your thinking because of what you've heard? Did you learn something new that you need to believe? Is there some sort of sin that you need to repent from because of what you've heard? Do you need to run to Christ in faith? Do you need to offer up thanksgiving and praise for Jesus as the second Adam, the one who sets right all that was lost in Adam's fall? Take a few moments and respond to God quietly in your own soul, your own heart. And then we're going to join together in a moment and sing, O Church Arise. Let's pray.